Would you turn with me to Proverbs 24? Proverbs 24, and I'd like to say a word of prayer while you're finding that text. Our Father, we come to you now thankful for those glorious hymns that we have sung before you. We have sung them to you. We have sung them to one another. And now, Lord, we get to hear what you say simply by opening our Bibles and reading the words that you have given to us. And I pray that this day Christ would be exalted. We pray that the gospel would be proclaimed. We pray that the saved would be sanctified and that the unsaved would be brought to the cross. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us with your word and that you would change us and make us more like Christ this day than we were when we woke up this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to spend some time together this morning kind of all over the book of Proverbs, so keep your fingers warmed up. We'll stay in Proverbs. I I don't ever feel obligated to let man-made holidays dictate what I preach. You can kind of get a little bit ridiculous. I, I don't ever want to do a Columbus Day sermon or anything like that. And depending on the year, sometimes we acknowledge holidays and sometimes we don't. But given the fact that our culture has no clue about biblical manhood and biblical fatherhood, at this juncture in history, Father's Day is an excellent opportunity to think on these things from Scripture. It's already on our minds anyway. And so I'd like to use the book of Proverbs to explore what we'll call the spiritual role of a father. The spiritual role of a father. And I want to just get your thoughts going here by thinking about our culture and where we are right now. One of the biggest hits to the concept of fatherhood has come because of the tremendous deception and confusion that's been introduced to our culture on the, on the subject of manhood in general and what being a man is all about. There's several reasons that being a father has become a concept our culture really can barely relate to anymore. A few reasons. First of all, the church has often wavered on a strong stance on biblical fatherhood. That we've wavered at times. And the minute the church starts trying to accommodate the culture, one of the first areas to suffer loss is the family. That's where, where we see loss happening. When you compromise at the line of the family. Another reason being a father as a concept is, is something that we can barely relate to as a culture. We've been hit with a tidal wave of deception concerning gender distinctions. That somehow happiness may be achieved by changing your gender, which is impossible, by the way, because God determines gender, not people. In Canada, it is now illegal to say out loud that your own child is a girl if that girl has said she wants to be a boy. And you can do prison time for doing this. There's a third reason that we barely, as a culture, can relate to fatherhood. And that is the roots of deception go all the way back to the attack on the biblical family started by the women's liberation movement many decades ago. The women's liberation movement is the foundation, it's the starting point of breaking down gender distinctions, and of course they're completely inconsistent. Think about this. The women's liberation movement says gender should make no difference whatsoever. The LBGTQ movement says gender makes all the difference in the world. You can't have it both ways. Both the women's liberation movement and the LBGTQ movement, transgender movement, they say they exist to give freedom, and in fact, they do just the opposite. They have plunged our nation and our culture into the bondage of sin at a level I've never seen in my lifetime. It is absolute bondage. In fact, today, what's about the worst thing you can say? How how is it that you can quickly get canceled by everybody around you? You say this, I was born a man, Because God made me a man, and I am or will be a father in a home consisting of a husband, a wife, and children who will be raised how God made them, as girls or boys. You get canceled for saying that. You get mocked, ridiculed. We have no hatred. We have no animosity toward the victims of these deceptions. They are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. The victims of these deceptions are those that we must pray for, we must share the gospel with, we must be ready to minister to them. But you can't pretend to love a group or love a movement by agreeing even one iota 
with any ideology that's contrary to God's design. You don't meet anybody halfway. You don't try to accommodate. That has never worked. That's worked zero times in 2,000 years to lead people to faith in Christ. And so what I'd like to do this morning, I think it's important sometimes to do a message that kind of states the basics. Because the sheep in God's church, frankly, are easily led astray. That is the nature of sheep. Uh, the, the metaphor that Jesus used was not rocket scientists. It was sheep. And sheep are led astray. And a slow drift, a slippery slide is a dangerous thing. And so today, I'd like to do just kind of a basic message on what the Bible says about the spiritual role of a father. Now, you may not have children at home anymore. You may not be a father But the principles of the spiritual role of a father are a huge blessing, not only to yourself, but to those all around you. The church needs fatherly men. The world desperately needs fatherly men. Men who will shine the light of the gospel and how the knowledge of Christ works itself out in biblical manhood, in biblical fatherhood. Our understanding of and our implementation of obedience to what the Bible says about fatherhood, this is a major tool to demonstrate to the world that the gospel makes a difference. The people who follow Christ are are different. That being part of the body of Christ means that we follow God's design, his commands for the family. And we need that contrast more than ever before. In our culture today, isn't it unusual even to see a husband and a wife walking with his children in the park. It's becoming more unusual. So I'd like to just do a a basic kind of down-home Bible message for us this morning. I want to give you seven commands for spiritual fatherhood. I am not giving seven suggestions for spiritual fatherhood, nor am I giving seven things to ponder for spiritual fatherhood. These are commands. Paul told Titus to teach both the younger and the older men In Titus chapter 2, and he finishes off his preaching guide to Titus by telling Titus in chapter 2, verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That's the spirit of the Bible preaching. It is not to make suggestions. It is to give commands from Scripture. So we'll, we'll do these as commands. But since they're to men, we'll make them simple commands that we can understand. The first command, be a man. Be a man. Ten years ago, that would have seemed redundant. Today, you're saying, yes, amen. We need to hear that. Solomon gives a principle of manliness by describing the early life of a young man. And we're going to spend a long time on this particular command. The early life of a young man. Look with me at Proverbs 24, right near the end of the chapter in verse 27. Proverbs 24, 27. And this is spoken to a young man. He says, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. Prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. Now, this isn't so much speaking of the literal building of a house with four walls, although that idea is potentially part of the greater principle here. In the ancient Near East, families didn't break apart every time a child turned 18. That, that wasn't the culture. It wasn't the way. Men generally added to the family by marrying, and on a rural estate, rooms were added to the family home or another smaller home was built somewhere else on the property. But when we speak of the house here, this is more the metaphorical idea of the house, meaning his marriage, his family, his legacy, his, his whole family life. And Solomon here gives a very basic principle in an agrarian society And it is be a man before you have a family. And look at this process of being a man. He says, first of all, prepare your work outside. This is the idea of having a source of income, of doing what it takes to be a provider. And that is one of the main areas of being a man. We're going to spend some significant time on that a little bit later. Prepare your work outside. Secondly, he says, get everything ready for yourself in the field. What does that mean? It means that you're harvesting This is a picture of a son perhaps clearing a new piece of land and beginning to farm it and seeing a crop or two or three or four or five before marrying, before going girl crazy, before looking around at the young ladies and seeing who might be a a choice prospect. This is a very simple rule. 
that the young man should produce before he consumes. He's to be a producer. This is manly effort, doing something incredibly hard and not having everything handed to him. You notice it doesn't say here, make sure and get other people to plow the, pe- the field for you so that you can get married. No, it's him doing it. Now, sometimes we get a, we get a softball handed to us here in the book of Proverbs because you get clues as to what a verse means by just looking at the immediate context. And look at the main subject just a few verses later. Look at verse 30. I passed by the field of a sluggard. I think that's one of the top five greatest words to say in the English language. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles and a stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Verse 27 is the contrast to the lazy man. A man in verse 30 and following who is miserable for his wife, miserable for his family, because he consumes before he produces instead of producing before he consumes. I'd like to camp on this concept for a little bit here. I want to give you four applicational thoughts in relation to being a man. Four applicational thoughts. The first one is that being a father is easy. Being a father is easy. Any post-pubescent male can become a father. But being a father that is a man after God's design is quite another thing. Very, very different. Becoming a father means that a man has earned the right to build his house. It means he's made manly preparations. He's done things. He's accomplished things. This means he's been prepared to be married. He's set himself up in life by doing truly difficult tasks. He isn't driven by hormones. He isn't driven by desires. He's driven by the bigger goal of a wife and children, and he gets there the right way, and that is hard work. A second applicational thought. This Description in verse 27, this is the very preparation that turns a boy into a man. The, the definition of a man versus a boy has nothing to do with age, has nothing to do with uh, hormones. It has to do with what you've done. Robbing a boy of having to go through sacrifice, aches, pains to prepare for life, it robs him of the wisdom that he needs to be a decent husband and father. In fact, let me just show you. Turn with me to Proverbs 7 and... Verse 6, Proverbs 7 and verse 6, and we'll be going to a lot of different places in Proverbs. We're going to see the basic difference between a boy and a man. Proverbs 7, verse 6. This is the, the writer metaphorically looking out the window of his house and observing society. Proverbs 7, verse 6, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple... I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. And how does Solomon identify that that young man lacks sense? In verse 10, And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. And it goes on to describe that this young man is led astray by an immoral woman. Now, what does that say? It says that this young man is following his thoughts. He's following his feelings. He's following his passions. That he wants what he wants when he wants it. But the preparation process for being a family man that we saw in chapter 24, verse 27, that demonstrates a young man doing the things that he doesn't want to do, doing hard work with very little immediate rewards so that he can prepare to have the things that he does want to have. He doesn't follow his passions. He doesn't follow his hormones. He says, I'm going to plow this field because in 10 years, this field will give me enough money to have a wife and give me enough to have children. He does what's hard first. There's a third applicational thought, and I'll say this to young men in particular. You need to challenge yourself. You need to toughen up. You need to do things that are hard. You need to do things that hurt, things that take sacrifice and pain and that have rewards along the way. You need to earn the love and respect of a young woman because she sees that you're manly. You do difficult things. You persevere. You stick to things. You, you need to have stories for your children about the hard things you've done, the sacrifices you've made. 
Let me put it this way. If the best story you can tell your children is that one time you got a paper cut getting all the money your parents give you every month, that's not good enough. And you'll end up raising wimps. You need to have stories of things that you've done that are difficult, that are insurmountable. And you've done these things. Let me give you a fourth applicational thought. And this is to parents and grandparents. We'll divide this down even. Parents and grandparents of boys. If you continually rescue your boys from the consequences of their own actions, they'll never toughen up. They'll never become a man. Let them suffer. Let them work. Let them achieve. If you always make life soft for them, what you'll do is create what we have all over our culture today, feminized men who have to have their way all the time. Make them achieve. Don't hand everything to them. Give them practically unattainable goals. Don't give everything to them. Don't create a sense of entitlement that makes for a soft man. You need to make men of your boys. And how about parents and grandparents of girls? What are you looking for in a potential young man? You're looking for a young man who's done something notable, who has demonstrated manliness. If you say, what have you done that's manly? He has something to say. He's taken on a huge challenge. He's met that challenge such that he's gained the respect of a young woman's father. Something auspicious, something life-changing, something big. There is a reason that every major ancient culture has some sort of coming-of-age challenge for young men so that they have something to say, that this turned me into a man. Let me illustrate this. Let me give you a contrast. I'll sort of set up a, a scenario here. Two young men are interested in the same young lady. That is the story of love of the centuries, right? And these young men respectfully and rightfully approach this young woman's father, which biblically, by the way, has nothing to do with how old a young woman is. She might be 18. She might be 38. If she's unmarried, she's still under the authority of her father for his blessing. These two young men are interested in his daughter, and we'll call them young man A and young man B. I tried to think of names, but I kept thinking of names in our church, and I didn't want to make anybody uncomfortable. <laughs> so here's the contrast. Young man A says, Mr. Smith, okay, that's a good start. It's respectful. He didn't say, hey, dude, that's good. Mr. Smith, I, I, I love your daughter. She's the best. I would like to get to know her better and hopefully marry her. She is the light of my life, and I really feel a lot for her. Well, that's nice. The next day, young man B comes and knocks on the door and says, Mr. Smith, I love your daughter, and I would like to get to know her better, to hopefully marry her. She is the light of my life, and I really feel a lot for her. And I believe I would be a good husband for the following reasons. Proverbs twenty four twenty seven says that a man is to prepare your work outside. To me, this means doing whatever it takes to get ready to be a man with a family. I'm two-thirds of the way through my trade school. I've enrolled in a training program after trade school to get further training. Proverbs 24, 27 also says, get, ready, get everything ready for yourself in the field, which means to get ready to be a, a producer. And I want to be a producer, not just a consumer. I want to be an earner. I have worked the same job for the past three years. I have saved $25,000 as my start in life, enough money to get married, to get settled into a modest home, and to buy some of the necessities that we need. In addition, I've been preparing myself spiritually. I serve in two different ministries, plus I've been mentored and discipled by three different men, and I've asked all of them to help me prepare for marriage and family. My goal is to marry your daughter and to love her as Christ loves the church. Now, what's Mr. Smith to do? Mr. Smith says to young man B, well done, good and faithful servant. (laughs) Young man A comes back and he says, depart from me. I never knew you. That's the right answer. That's the spirit of the Proverbs 24, 27. Be a man before wanting the things that men get. The first command, be a man. Second command, be a leader. Be a leader. Turn back a few pages to Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1, we have an open assertion by a father what the job of a son is, and he makes no apology for this. Proverbs 1, verse 8. Proverbs 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. 
Hear, my son, your father's instruction. It's an imperative. It's a command. Proverbs is written by a father to provide spiritual leadership to his son. That's the whole point of the entire book. What is spiritual leadership in your family? I don't want to spend a long time on this, but I want to give you just three basic components of what spiritual leadership is. I get this question from men a lot, so let's keep this simple. The first component, at the very least, your own life is built around following Christ. Your own life is built around following Christ. A man may be married to a disobedient woman, maybe even married to an unbeliever, but your life is built around Christ and your family knows it. You lead, at the very least, by example. A second basic component is the Word of God. That the Word of God and the knowledge of the Word are continually flowing into your home like cool, refreshing water. Let me put it to you this way, men. Your family will prioritize the Word of God only to the level that you do. Here's the third basic component, prayer. Prayer is a regular and normal part of your family life, and we'll bring, in, we'll bring this up in other ways as well. You're following Christ, the Word of God, prayer. That's how you provide spiritual leadership. But you might say, but this is difficult, it's hard, and it's true. Spiritual leadership in the home is a challenge, and there's two major, major spiritual challenges to spiritual leadership in our homes. The sin of the husband and the sin of the wife. Those are our two challenges. The sin of a husband is that because of our sin nature, men tend to be passive. We tend to not lead because it's too hard or because it's easier to just keep the peace at all costs, to be what Proverbs calls the sluggard. To just say, all I'm doing is trying to keep my head down, keep my nose clean, and make it to my own death. That's my whole goal in life now. And then the sin of a wife is to tend toward aggressiveness. That's the curse of Genesis 3.16, where God tells the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Those two major challenges to spiritual leadership that, that, tend, that men tend to allow the one to follow because it's easier And it's the path of least resistance, and women tend to want to lead, which is the exact opposite of the biblical mandate. In fact, let me show you a family where the the husband and father is not spiritually leading, where he's following passively, and where his wife is leading aggressively. Turn to Proverbs 19, verse 13. Proverbs 19, verse 13. And we're going to see here a negative example of a family that nobody wants a part of. Nobody wants to be in these four walls. Proverbs 19, verse 13. A foolish son is ruined to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. A foolish son is ruined to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. Now, we understand that even the best and godliest of parents are not guaranteed by God an outcome of terrific children. What I want to point out is that this is a picture of a failing family on all three fronts. Children who are foolish and allowed to be foolish. Instead, children ought to be obeying their parents and respectfully submitting to their wisdom. The second front, this family's failing, the wife, a wife who can't control her tongue and is obsessed with constant correction and constantly making life miserable for everyone around her instead of doing her duty, which is to provide peace and warmth and love. And then the the really foundational failure of the family, a husband who's apparently not leading spiritually because both his children and his wife are off track. Instead, we're to do the opposite. Children who submit to their parents, wives who are peaceful, and husbands who are leading. You're to be a man, be a leader. It's the third command, be a shepherd. Be a shepherd. The book of Proverbs gives two basic ways that fathers are to shepherd their families, shepherd their children in particular. These two ways we would just call training and discipline. And the principle is very simple. You start with training, and if the training is not responded to, then you move to discipline. And so let's spend the majority of our time on this point on training. Turn with me back to Proverbs chapter 3. And I know we're going all over the place, but that's the nature of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3. Now, while the focus here 
on this verse is a comparison between earthly fathers and the heavenly father. The saying about earthly fathers is still true. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. Proverbs 3, 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. What does this mean? It means that the father is reproving a son that he loves. What does it mean to reprove? Well, it's a Hebrew word that means be found to be right. This is biblical precedent to say I'm right and you're wrong. At a deeper level, what it means to do is to prove your case. In fact, it means to argue. I don't mean in the sense of causing conflict. It's in the sense of making your case, making your point, explaining yourself to your children. And in fact, the verb form tells us that this reproof is repeated over and over and over again. When your children are mouthing the words that you're saying, you've been successful because you've said it over and over again. Now, I want you to notice this is not a father making suggestions to his children. Turn the page to Proverbs 4, verse 1. This is not suggestions that are being made. Proverbs 4, verse 1, look at the insistence that the father has. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. Two imperatives, two commands. Hear, be attentive. It means be alert, pay attention. Don't just look like you're listening. You need to be taking notes. You don't have to give me a show of hands, but how many of you have parents, as parents, have made your children get a notebook and a pencil or pen and say, you're going to take notes on this lecture I'm about to give you? That's what it means. Hear me. Pay attention. And of course, Proverbs is filled with admonitions toward this training. We'll just take a little tour here. Turn to Proverbs 13, verse 1. Proverbs 13, 1 shows us that part of training is presented is presenting a choice to children. And this is absolute heavenly genius. Presenting this choice. Proverbs 13, verse 1. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. This is incredible. Because before even getting to the subject matter of the lecture that's about to come, the father is saying, do you want to be wise or do you want to be an idiot? Which one do you want to be? Do you want to be wise and knowledgeable or do you want to be the scoffer, the mocker, the one that God says you better watch out? What a genius concept to tell your child, I'm about to talk to you about something. Do you want to be wise or do you want to be a scoffer? What's a child going to say? Children are wired to please their parents and they will most likely say, okay, I want to be wise. You've set them up to listen. Incredible. Turn with me to Proverbs 22. In Proverbs 22, just taking a tour of this training. Proverbs 22, verse 6, is probably the best-known verse concerning training children in maybe all the Bible. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, this is actually quite a debated verse, particularly on the question of what does it mean to train up a child in the way he should go? There's two generally accepted major interpretations that are popular. The the first one is, is train up a child in accordance with his nature with what he's, how he's made. In other words, you know your individual children, you provide instruction tailor-made for that child. That's a reasonable concept and probably could be proven from other places in Scripture. Another popular interpretation, though, a little bit different, that it just means generally train up a child in the ways of the Lord and to obey the Lord in all areas of life. Again, that's a very valid understanding, very common sense concept. Both of those ideas have merits, but neither one of them is the primary emphasis here. Primary emphasis is a little more obvious. The primary emphasis is simply train up in a child in a manner appropriate for a child. You don't treat a child like an adult. You train a child in the proper theological context of understanding that your child's biggest problem is sin. And that you don't treat him like he's inherently good. You don't treat him like he's inherently moral and able to make wise choices. When you, you train up a child, you use 
childlike vocabulary, childlike concepts, childlike choices that a child can understand. Train up a child because in the way of a child. I'm always mind-boggled when I see a parent telling an 18-month-old, now that's an inappropriate choice. They didn't understand everything except when you called their name. That was it. So how long do you train your children? How long do you train them? Turn the next page to Proverbs 23, 22. And you parents of adult children, you are going to love this. Your job is not finished. Proverbs 23, 22. Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. Two observations about this verse. First of all, you notice that simply that the fact that you gave life to your children gives you inherently the heavenly and biblical right to give them instruction. So the old saying, I brought you into this world so I can instruct you, is true. It's biblical. I get to instruct you because I'm your father, I'm your mother. But the second implication that I want to focus on for just a moment, this is obviously speaking to adult children, telling them to listen That yes, moms, you may continue speaking into the lives of your adult children. It doesn't mean to interfere in the rightful marital relationship and so forth, but it means to give spiritual wisdom and spiritual help. I I would love that. I I lost my father to a car accident in 2005. I would love to call my dad one more time and say, Dad, what would you do? I would love to call my dad, who who now would be in his late 80s, and, and say, Dad, what have you learned in the last few years? So if you're a child in the, that stage where you don't want to listen to your parents anymore, you need to consider Proverbs 23. Let me show you another one. Look at, back at Proverbs 22, verse 15. Just taking this tour of what this training is. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, another very popular verse. 22.15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. I want you to notice the theological underpinning here. That is the inherent sin nature of every child. You notice this wondrous concept. This is, this is phenomenal. That the rod of discipline drives this folly far from him. And by the way, people try to do Hebrew tricks. Well, that rod actually means the scepter of a king and it talks about wisdom. No, rod means a big stick. That's all it means. But look at this concept. Discipline and correction that are outward, pain that you cause, begin to yield the fruit of the child internalizing what you discipline them for in the first place. It becomes what they believe. Let me illustrate If you wisely determine that your children are, in fact, going to be respectful and quiet in public places, and you make the wise decision to enforce that regularly and with consistency, a glorious day will happen. You'll know that you've sort of arrived when this day happens. As your children get older, and as they observe other children who are not respectful, who are not quiet in public places, your kids begin to comment on how wrong and unloving that is. You know you've made it. They've internalized your values. Why? Because of the rod of discipline. Speak to fathers for a moment. The discipline of your children cannot be sissy style. It needs to be with resolve. It needs to be with determination to outlast your child, whether that's a minute, a day, a week, a month, a year, or a decade. That you can out-discipline their stubbornness until their willful disregard for your authority is broken. You know what the scariest look on the father's face is? It's not anger. The scariest look on the father's face is a calm smile. I can do this all day. That scares kids to death, and it should. Because you must outpace their rebellion. That's why you're bigger than they are. That's why you're stronger than they are. When your little two-year-old runs this way and you want him to go this way, you get him and you put him where you want him to be. And if he does it again, you spank him. If he does it again, you spank him harder. And you tell him, I can do this all day. It must be with resolve. You shepherd with training. And when training won't be heeded, then you shepherd with discipline. Here's a fourth command we'll call be a provider. Be a provider. And again, we're just doing some basics here. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6. The Bible repeats things that are 
highly important. It's all important in Scripture, but sometimes we get the joy of repetition. Proverbs 6, verse 6, we return once again to the sluggard. And despite how much fun it is to say the word sluggard, what is this precisely? Sluggard is a Hebrew word which means one who hesitates, one who is passive. He has difficulty making a decision. It means he's slow, means he's idle. We can put it in terms that we can identify with in uh, Kern County. He's the guy who says, ready, aim, and there's no fire. He's always ready, aim. And look at this outstanding passage. Chapter 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, and consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. It feels like we read that already. We did. I love the formal address, oh, sluggard, a couple of times here. Part of understanding this dynamic is that the sluggard is often beset by distraction, that his priorities aren't lined up properly, and the father's first priority is to provide. It's his first priority. Turn with me a few pages to Proverbs 12. In Proverbs 12, verse 11 I want to show you this tendency toward distraction, toward not staying focused on a goal. Proverbs 12, verse 11. And this is a poetic parallelism that is a contrast. Proverbs 12, verse 11. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. What is this saying? It's saying that prosperity and provision come from faithfulness not fantasies it comes from sweat not schemes it comes from long roads not shortcuts that you work hard don't follow worthless pursuits and there's such a basic and foundational motivation for this turn with me to proverbs 16 verse 26 16 26 what's the basic foundational motivation to work hard to provide the motivation is to eat it is to eat. Proverbs sixteen twenty six. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. Jesus tells the parable of, of workers coming at various times during the day. And some of the workers come at the last hour of the day. Why would somebody show up to a work site the last hour of the day? Because they don't have any food. And they're eager. One of the many countless problems that indicate a broken society in which we live is the prevalence of the idea of equality. Equality is a concept straight from the pit of hell. And you say, you don't believe in equality? No, I don't, because the Bible doesn't. The Bible does not teach equality. The Bible teaches equity and justice. And there's a big difference. Equality says everyone should have the same things with no regard to work or diligence. In government circles, we call that Marxism. Equity says everyone should be rewarded for the work they they do to the level that they've achieved. What does the Bible say about this? Paul tells the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, he should go down to the Social Security office and get money. No, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not, what? Eat. That's pretty motivating. I have a job for you. You haven't eaten in three days. Would you like to do some work? Yes, sir. I'm hungry. Remember what Paul said in the context of providing for widows in 1 Timothy 5, 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. How can this make someone worse than an unbeliever when they won't provide? Because even unbelievers provide for their families. Atheists get jobs. For many men, this has never been a problem. But for others, sluggardness is a fight they will contend with until that pattern is broken for good. They need to do difficult things. They need to do hard things. They need to be challenged. They need to be broken. They need to have pain. I know that for a young man, particularly in our economy right now, not being particularly conducive to stretching the dollar, 
I know that this idea of providing can feel intimidating. So I want to be very as helpful as we can here. How do you provide? There's three ways to provide. The first way you provide is through prayer. It's through prayer. The, the godly father is on his knees asking the Lord for help, for opportunity, for provision, not for handouts, but for help. This is one of the greatest joys of being a Christian man, looking back over years and then decades at God's faithful answer to prayer. Prayer, the second way you provide, priority. Priority, some men have difficulty providing simply because they don't make it the same priority God has made it. It's your top priority as a family man. Elements of laziness or entitlement or pride might enter that prevent a man from doing whatever it takes, including doing jobs that he might think are beneath him to provide for his own. You know who invented the 40-hour work week? It was industrialized America in the late 19th century. There are 168 hours in the week. There's plenty of time to work more than 40 hours and still be a wonderful husband, a wonderful father, and a good churchman. Plenty of time. Prayer, priority, third way to provide, perseverance. Perseverance. I've got the secret to getting ahead. It's this. In our society, we have young people who can't stick to anything. It used to be that at least they lied in their job interview and said, yes, I would like to move up in the ranks at McDonald's. Now they just say, I don't really care. I just need money for drugs. And they just are are blunt about it. There's no sense of push. There's no sense of, of aggressiveness. You know what the secret is for you as a Christian young man? Stick around longer than the next guy. Do the basics well. Show up on time. Have a great attitude. Work harder than the next guy. And eventually what you'll have is benefits and rewards. Mean it when you tell somebody, yes, I want to do this and I intend to be better than everyone else at it. How can you help me work extra to get good at this one thing? Prayer, priority, perseverance. You will never lack for your family, ever, if you will do those three things. Be a man, be a leader, be a shepherd, be a provider. There's a fifth command, be an achiever. Be an achiever. Turn with me to Proverbs 17, 6. Oh, our society hates achievement, doesn't it? Our, our, the, the classic illustration now is the giving of trophies to everyone. The giving away of self-esteem. You want self-esteem? Do something worth being proud of. It's very simple. Proverbs 17, verse 6. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. Now, in a general sense, this verse has has a very profound principle, and that's the principle of interdependence of generations and families. That's the way it ought to be. But I want to focus on the second half here. The glory of children is their fathers. Every child is born pre-wired by God to desire to be proud of his father. We're born that way, to derive satisfaction and joy by receiving love and observing the life of his dad. It's the glory of children. Is it any wonder that Satan has attacked fatherhood at such a level because it destroys kids? Now, the application is obvious for fathers. This is not difficult. Do things that make your children proud. Do things that make your kids proud. We're built to achieve, to accomplish, to strive, to do more, to do better. And there's a side benefit to this, by the way. As your children see you achieving, it teaches them to do that as well. In fact, Proverbs tells us the outcome of achieving. Turn a few pages over to Proverbs 22, verse 29. 22, 29, what's the outcome? We're going to see a very simple concept for a man that finding even just one thing and being good at that one thing has tremendous benefits. Proverbs 22, verse 29, very last verse of the chapter. What's the outcome of achieving? Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. This is a man who has worked hard. And by the way, there's a contrast. Verse 28, do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. That's a cheater. That's somebody who's not good at anything except cheating. Verse 29 is get good at one thing. This is the difference between the man who does his job and the man who does his job with excellence and skill going above and beyond to become very, very good at what he does. Eventually, this gets noticed. Eventually, this gets recognized. 
And this has a lot to do with, by the way, how that working man views authority, views those above him. What is his view? What's the view of authority today? Our, generally, our culture hates authority. That's, that's the sinful view of our culture. But part of being excellent and then being honored for your excellence is being excellent on behalf of those to whom you answer, those in authority over you. Let me show you this. Proverbs 27, verse 18. Turn with me to 2718. We're going to see the difference between begrudgingly working for someone with a snarky, impudent attitude and working for someone with an attitude of serving them and taking ownership over what you do. Proverbs 27, 18, whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and he who guards his master will be honored. Well, this is, a, this is picturing a simple gardener. He's a gardener who is tending an orchard on behalf of the owner of the orchard. And not only is the gardener taking care of the orchard, but when it's harvest time, he's out there guarding the trees. He's guarding the orchard from thieves. Why? Because he cares about the owner, and he treats the orchard like it's his own. And so what will the orchard owner do? He will honor the servant who guarded what is his. That's loyalty, that's fidelity, that's pleasing to the Lord. This is a man who achieves. Now, I could easily close in prayer here, and and we could do that after these first five commands because they're basic. They're a good biblical baseline for a man. Be a man, a leader, a shepherd, a provider, an achiever. I want to spend the rest of our time taking this to a higher level to a more heavenly level, loftier in thinking. The sixth command we'll say is be a light. Be a light. This is part of being a a godly father. Be a light. Turn with me to Proverbs 17 again. Just a few verses away from where we were. Be a light. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the idea of living out your new covenant life in Christ by being set apart, being different, being utterly opposite of the unbeliever. The unbeliever observes your good works and the most central feature that should characterize the Christian life, the light that shines, what should it be? It should be love. And Proverbs has so much to say about love. We'll hit a couple of samples here. Proverbs 17, 9 17 verse 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. This is speaking of the ability not only to practice forgiveness, but discretion as well. There's two parts to this proverb, and they're related. They kind of go together. The first part may include forgiveness, but it's not blind forgiveness. Blind forgiveness doesn't deal with the offense, but how is the offense dealt with? How is it covered, so to speak? Well, the idea here is that the offense is dealt with privately and with discretion. That's loving. And the related second part gives the opposite of this principle, repeating a matter which separates friends. Ephesians 4.29 puts it this way, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up. Corrupting talk is that which pollutes or taints the view of another This falls into the category of slander. It falls into the category of reviling, which is verbal abuse. Instead, what a light you are as fathers. When those around you see the way you build others up and you lift them up instead of tearing everyone down around you. Much to say on this. Look at chapter 17, still verse 17. Another help in being that light of love. Chapter 17, verse 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times. What does that mean? Well, put it this way in the negative sense. If you say that you're available at that level to everyone you know, that's not real. That's not reality. In the body of Christ, there should be many interlocking and overlapping circles of friendships. Some will be deeper than others. And for a few, you can be that person who is the friend that loves at all times. Let me build on this. Proverbs 19, verse 22. We're going to see the contrast of what being a light looks like. And we'll come back to the concept of friendship. Proverbs 19, verse 22. Here's that friend who loves at all times. What is desired in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. Here's the contrast. On the one hand, 
you have the person who gives steadfast love. And this is the most important Hebrew word in the Old Testament, chesed, covenant-keeping love. It's most often used of God, but in this sense it's used of a man. The man with this covenant love might even be a poor man. But he's valued and he's treasured because his love is genuine and it's real. On the other hand, you have the liar. Why is the liar presented in this verse as a contrast with true steadfast love? The liar is the one who says he has steadfast love. He uses his mouth to say it. In an attempt to make everyone happy, he says, I'll be everything to everyone. I'll give you the shirt off my back. But he says it to too many people. And he can't ever demonstrate that steadfast love because he's too busy trying to please everyone. This is the man with a thousand friendships that are an inch deep. They're not real. You as a father, you're called to be a light, to love others, to demonstrate Christ-like care and tenderness and patience and friendship. You start with your wife, you go to your kids, you go to your church. A father like that is an incredible, powerful influence for Christ. I want to go to one more in our lofty thinking now. Be a man, a leader, a shepherd, a provider, an achiever. Those are very earthy. We get a little more heavenly with be a light, but our second command, seventh command rather, is the highest of all, and that is to be a worshiper. Be a worshiper. If you're successfully accomplishing the first six, that you're a man, you're a leader, a shepherd, a provider, an achiever, even a light, and yet your family and those closest to you don't associate you with worship, then there's a gaping hole in the core reasoning behind doing the first six in the first place. Let's go all the way back to Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1. And we're going to see what the whole point of the book of Proverbs is. And it has to do with worship. That the wisdom contained in all these inspired pages must have a singular starting point, and that is worship. Proverbs 1, verse 7, the whole point of the book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In a broad sense, this theme verse of Proverbs gives a very black and white principle that those who want wisdom from God, who including correction and rebuke, those, those are the ones who fear the Lord. They're truly God worshipers. And conversely, those who despise wisdom from God prove that they're fools. In Proverbs, it means an unregenerate unbeliever. So what do worshipers do? Worshipers pray. Worshipers pray. Could I say this, men? The words that your family should hear you say on a regular basis in your home are, let's pray. Let's pray, and not just before meals. If your family knows that you're a man of prayer, half your job is done. You've already made it halfway there. Not the showy prayers of a man trying to prove how spiritual he is, but prayers of humility and thankfulness and cross-centered prayers. Worshippers pray. Worshippers also read. They read. We, we've not always lived in a society in which every Christian owns a copy of the Bible. That's not the case anymore. We have Bibles. Worshippers read the word and they know the word. How about this one? Worshippers sing. Worshippers sing. I, I've lost track of the number of times I have had families say that their dad takes them to church, but he won't sing. A songless Christian is an oxymoron. There's no such thing. You know what one of the most delightful things to me as a pastor is? It is to hear Sometimes in our congregation, men who might have trouble carrying the tune, but they can carry the gospel. And they can carry the word of God on their voices. Worshippers pray, worshippers read, worshippers sing, worshippers gather meaningfully. Worshippers gather meaningfully. I don't mean just being in proximity with the people of God. And that is the failing of men to just gather barely and just be here in in person but not in spirit meaningful gathering is deep and intimate fellowship with the people of god if you are not gathering meaningfully with god's people as a father you're sending a terrible message to your children and on top of that worshipers prepare to gather meaningfully 
They pray, they read, they sing, they gather meaningfully, they, they prepare to gather meaningfully. Did you hear how Solomon describes a worshiper? One who fears the Lord. The Bible never redefines fear. It always means the same thing. It means to be afraid. It means to be in awe. It means to be terrified. Proverbs mentions living life in the fear of the Lord once every other chapter. And this is worked out in one fashion in the heart attitude of gathering together for worship. You know, it doesn't matter whatever view you take on 1 Corinthians 11. Some say that that is about uh, the, the Lord's Supper being taken in an unworthy manner and the Lord is killing unbelievers because they're taking the Lord's Supper. Others say the Lord is killing believers. In either case, the Lord is killing people who go to church. Why? Because gathering together is important and you don't do it without preparing. Worshippers pray, read, sing, gather meaningfully, and prepare to gather meaningfully. In the spirit of being a worshiper, could we just go heavenward one more time? Because I haven't answered the main question that you ought to be asking, and that is, why is the role of father so vital? I want to take a bit of a moment to answer this. I want to start with the role of a son. Specifically, the son, Jesus Christ. He's always been the son of God. Jesus didn't become the son of God at his conception and birth. Jesus said in John 16, 28, I came from the father, meaning he was the son when he came. John 3, 16 and 17, Jesus said that God gave his only son. God sent his son. Paul said in Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This is sometimes called the doctrine of eternal sonship of Christ. But if God the Son has always been a son, then God the Father has always been what? The Father. He always has been. Why is the role of father so very vital? It's because it's one of the greatest ways. It's one of the most obvious ways. It's one of the clearest ways that we reflect the image of God as fathers. Is it any wonder that our world is trying to erase the biblical family, to erase biblical fatherhood? Because what they're really trying to do is blot out the image of God. To make God invisible in the world, which of course is impossible. Now, I told you we would stick only the Proverbs. And so how could we relate to God the Father and God the Son in Proverbs? As we've perused through Proverbs about the role of a manly father right near the end. We see the model. We see the example. We see the prototype. God the Father and God the Son. Turn with me to Proverbs 30 and then we'll be finished this morning. Proverbs 30, partway into the chapter, the text asks this series of rhetorical questions, and they're questions meant to shame those who think they're wise. It's meant to say that no one can really explain God. No one can fathom the vast power behind his creation. No one can know God unless he makes himself known. It's a challenge to the one who thinks he's got God figured out. And listen to these questions that puts mankind in his place. Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. What is his name and what is his son's name? And in God's graciousness, we have the answer, don't we? An angel told Joseph in Matthew 1, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. We have the answer to that question. Can I put it this way, fathers? Your role, your calling is bound up in the very nature of God himself. The world has nothing whatsoever to offer you in terms of being the biblical father. Nothing Take the word of God alone. Ignore worldly inputs. If the world says you should do it, that's very helpful. Do the opposite and you're probably okay. Your whole goal is to look to your heavenly father and pray, may I be like you and properly reflect the image of God. That's my prayer for you and for myself. Let's pray. Our father, thank you for our time today. 
I pray for our families here, Lord. They are increasingly standing against a culture that hates God, a culture that hates godly families, a culture that certainly hates the church and hates the gospel and hates the Christ of the gospel. And so I pray that at Grace Bible Church, our families would be lights in the dark world, that we would be salt to the world, Lord, that we would flavor the world with the the difference that the gospel makes. I pray that our husbands would love their wives. I pray that our wives would submit to their husbands. I pray that our children would obey their parents. And that by building a church filled with godly, strong families, we would build a strong church that would be a strong influence for the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would do this all for the sake and for the glory of the Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.